Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It's a Thursday. It's January 27th, year of our Lord, 2022. We got to dive right in because there's so much going on in the world. Uh, the Biden administration's OSHA uh, ETS order, that's the vaccine or test requirement, has been withdrawn. We are going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about some regulations in the truck driving field. That's actually a career field I've worked on in the past. I have a piece out uh, in Town Hall about regulation. We're going to talk about that. Great story in the program about a former patient at St. Jude's who decided to give back and raised a ton of money using some pigs. Love that story. Um, big ticket item. Uh, Bitcoin all over the headlines. Bitcoin has had a massive market adjustment. The valuation went through the floor. It's been all in the news. We're going to have Eric Peterson, another Young Voices contributor. Uh, He knows a lot more about Bitcoin than I do, so I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to do some listening. He's also got a piece out about NFTs, comparing them to sports memorabilia in a way to maybe make that understandable. Going to talk to him later in the program, but let's get to the big ticket news item. Uh, The retirement of Supreme Court Justice uh, Stephen Breyer. Uh, at my time at Ordinary Times, by far the most engagement, most reading, most heated rhetoric came when we had the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Now, Amy Coleman Barrett's hearings uh, were also uh, tons of fun for months on end, but they weren't as vitriolic as Kavanaugh's. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh's hearing was just insane for week after week after week when you're in the writing and media business. Now, let's just get to the finer points here. Uh, Justice Breyer is retiring at the end of the term, so he's not retiring tomorrow. This is going to be a story that is going to dominate uh, the political realm for most of this year. Remember, we're also in election year, and a lot of people think that Congress may change hands in November. So there's a lot of pressure on here. The idea, of course, is that he is a liberal justice. So if he retires with a Democratic president, he will be replaced with another liberal. Now, it won't change the tent on the court. Uh, It's still going to be a conservative majority court, at least on paper, although our friends like M. Carpenter talk about how those aren't hard and fast rules. But this is the situation. This is what a lot of people were begging for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to do and other justices down through the years so that they can retain ideologically what they want on the court. President Biden, when he ran for office, not only promised to nominate a woman for the Supreme Court, but specifically promised 
to nominate a black woman or a black woman of color to the court. Now, we'll see how that holds up. But if he does that, that rather pigeonholes him into who he's going to nominate for the court. He's going to go for the historic. He's going to go for those things. So we will see how this plays out. But I just generally, because there'll be lots of times to get into um, the court and the nominees and all these sorts of things. Uh, Justice Breyer's legacy, I'm sure we'll be talking to him and our other legal eagles about these things. But I just want to preface all this as we get ready to go into this season of Supreme Court Madness. Again, having been through it a time or two, a couple of thoughts. We always talk about turning down the noise, and we always talk about maintaining your bearing. These are going to be crucial for these debates. We all remember how nasty that Kavanaugh situation got. People, for whatever reason, just lose their ever-loving minds when it comes to the Supreme Court. Now, that's our own fault. We haven't held our government accountable. We don't keep our Congress in line to do what it's supposed to do. We don't keep the executive branch and the presidents in line to do what they do. And the court ends up getting a lot of court cases trying to clean up their mess. You can read them at Ordinary-Times.com. Most of the real hard-hitting and influential Supreme Court decisions, we post the source documents, the actual rulings. You can read them. They're PDFs. You can search them. Ruling after ruling of the Roberts Court in the last few years, they keep coming back to a theme of, This is the legislative branch's problem. They need to fix it, and they'll kick stuff back down or do some kind of a workaround to try to get Congress to do their job. So when we have all this heated rhetoric over the Supreme Court, remember where it starts. Our system of government is out of balance right now. We don't have accountable government. We have a clown show where a Congress should be. They don't do their business well. We have an executive branch that has encroached and taken more and more executive power. We have a judicial branch that's gotten overloaded with court cases trying to deal with people that aren't handling their business. Now, that doesn't absolve them from their responsibilities. They've had some bad decisions along the way as well. But the whole system's out of whack. So when the heated rhetoric comes really hard, fast, and strong over the replacement for Justice Breyer, remember how we got here where the Supreme Court is disproportionately important to our system of government anyway. It's because we're not doing things the way they need to be done. Having said all that, we're going to have a good, long, hard, old-fashioned American fight over this. We have a distinctly 50-50 Senate, which will do the confirmation process. Obviously, Vice President Harris is the tie-breaking vote. There will also be machinations to hold up the nomination, I'm sure, by some parties on the right. Um, This is all going to fall on who President Biden nominates. If he nominates somebody that all the Democrats can get behind and perhaps a few of the moderate Republican senators, uh, it'll go through decently smoothly. If he nominates somebody openly radical or who has issues, this is going to get really ugly really fast. Frankly, it's probably going to be ugly really fast either which way. But he can assage some of this by picking somebody that is supremely qualified for the Supreme Court first and foremost, and then all the other stuff later. At least then it'll be harder to argue against it. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, gird your loins. Your timelines are going to be a mess for the rest of the year between the election and the Supreme Court nomination. That's just how it's going to be. So let's prepare now and resolve to maintain our bearing. And we're going to do our best to have knowledgeable guests on get to the information, and turn down the noise on what's going to be a very, very noisy political 2022. Got a lot to get through, so a very short starting segment because we got a lot of other stuff to do. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Hertel. (music) 
Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Uh, updating a story we've covered before. The Biden administration is withdrawing its COVID-19 vaccination and testing regulation. We're reading this from CNN.com. Uh, aimed at large businesses following the Supreme Court's decision to block the rule earlier this month. The U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration said Tuesday it will be withdrawing the vaccination and testing emergency temporary standard ETS Forum businesses with 100 more employees, according to the statement on the agency's website. Although OSHA is withdrawing the vaccine and testing ETS as an enforceable emergency temporary standard, the agency is not withdrawing the ETS as a proposed rule. The agency is prioritizing its resources to focus on finalizing a permanent COVID-19 healthcare standard. The withdrawal of the emergency temporary standard does not affect the ETS's continuing status as a proposed rule. That's a nice little bit of word salad. A U.S. Department of Labor spokesman told CNN OSHA is evaluating the record and evolving course of the pandemic. OSHA has made no determinations at this time about when or if it will finalize a vaccine and testing rule. The agency intends to work expeditiously to issue a final standard that will protect healthcare workers from COVID-19 hazards. Spokesperson says the decision comes less than two weeks after the Supreme Court blocked the rule dealing a major blow to President Biden's attempts to use the power of the federal government to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. OSHA's regulations require businesses with 100 or more employees to ensure their workers are fully vaccinated or undergo regular testing and wear face masks. After evaluating the court's decision, OSHA is withdrawing the vaccination and testing ETS as an enforceable emergency temporary standard OSHA released. Uh, Let's just back up for a second. When this standard first came out, when they said they weren't going to enforce it until January, a lot of folks, including me, said that this was going to be more posed than policy. What they were doing was pushing this way out into the future so that they weren't going to have to deal with it. And they figured the court was going to knock it down anyway. So we'll just push it out. We'll look like we're going to do something and then it'll quietly go away when it gets enough pushback. And here we are. Once again, the Biden administration is putting optics and look at me, we're doing something ahead of good policy. If they thought this was a policy, they should fight it out in court and leave it in place. The fact that they're going quietly and meekly into the night after devising this rather novel policy, by the way, which may or may not have held up in court, tells you that they did it for the optics in the first place. Not to mention that since this first came into practice, the Omicron variant has changed how we've seen things. And we know the vaccination standards and the infection rates have changed. Like we talked with our friend Michael Siegel yesterday. If you missed any of that, go back and listen to his uh, comments because he talks about the fact that Omicron changed things because it's different than the other variants and we need to be flexible. Government regulation is not flexible. It has to be written in black and white. And in something like a pandemic, the pandemic's moving faster than the regulation goes, especially poorly thought out regulation like this ETS standard, where they knew it was going to have problems in court. They did it anyway because they thought it was politically viable for what they wanted to do. They wanted credit for do something when things were looking bleak, and now they're quietly backing away from it. That looks like they did it for the optics and not for the policy, because that's exactly what they did. They did it for the optics and not the policy. That's why they don't have any problem very meekly in the dark of the night announcing that it's just going to go away like it never happened. But they'll try something else. This is a long-running problem with this Biden administration. They are obsessed with optics and media wins without actually doing lasting policy things. We hope they change. I doubt it, especially in an election year with a cantankerous Congress. 
I don't think the Biden administration is going to have a lot of wins. I suspect they'll continue to go for the optics and the media hits and hope they can ride it out. We should hold our government more accountable than that. We deserve better than that. And if we don't hold them accountable, we deserve the government we get. More Herd Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, those of you that don't know a lot about my background, before I became the world's least compensated writer and got into doing Ordinary Times and got into doing Herd Tell and radio and other media, uh, I between my military service and that, I was working in the civilian private sector. I was working for trucking companies, transportation companies, doing things like truck driver management and freight operations. So in partnership with Young Voices, uh, I kind of went back to my roots a little bit, did a little op-ed writing on some policy. There was a policy buried in the infrastructure package for a pilot program to allow CDL drivers between the ages of 18 and 21 to cross state lines. It's gotten a lot of pushback. So I wrote about it. I want to talk about it because it goes to things like age bias, bad regulations, and lazy stereotypes being turned into bad law. Uh, let's run through it real quick. Um, writing in Town Hall, this is from me. Uh, stereotype slogans and lazy data analysis are nothing new, but when rhetorical tropes become the foundation of regulatory policy, real-world consequences quickly happen. And this mix of laziness and bias is something as impactful to the overall economy as the commercial truck driver shortage. And you have a preventable folly inevitably turning into a full-blown disaster. The pushback against a pilot apprenticeship program in President Biden's recently passed infrastructure package has all those factors converging into a frustrating mess where a policy solution ought to be. Signed into law in November 2021, the program would allow commercial driver's license, CDL holders, under the age of 21 to drive across state lines after completing additional training. The stated goal is to get more commercial drivers into the interstate trucking ranks at a younger age and alleviate the truck driver shortage in an industry with serious retention issues, issues that are projected to get much worse if no action is taken. According to the U.S. Census Bureau's Quinquennial Commodity Flow Survey, that's a big fancy word meaning five, I'm told when I Googled it, Calculated in partnership with the Department of Transportation, 71.6% or $10.4 trillion of the $14 trillion of values of all goods moved in America did so on commercial trucks in the last year the report was taken. Commercial trucking and the freight it carries is the working end of the United States economy that makes all other commerce possible. Every one of those commercial trucks must be driven by one of the 3.5 million truck operators who must hold a CDL, yet for years, warnings of the impending commercial truck driver shortage have gone unheeded. Some of the reasons for those alarms were obvious. Like many of the other sectors of the economy, large amounts of the boomer generation were going to all retire around the same time. Then there was other things like the COVID-19 pandemic that was less predictable and domestic labor shortage that came with it, but further exposed already existing issues. Then there are the self-inflicted issues of regulation, gatekeeping, and poor policy. While 49 states allow CDLs for anyone over 18 who otherwise meet the requirements, federal statute restricts them from crossing state lines, in most cases unless they are 21 years of age. Letting young people drive all over the country is unsafe. It's crazy, owner-operator Independent Association Executive VP Louis Pugh expressed in opposition to the pilot apprentice program. We all know that younger people crash more. They just have more accidents. But the data for young drivers in general does not accurately or fairly represent those over 18 who are properly trained and certified commercial drivers. Those, cite, those who cite such figures use data sets that lump 16 and 19-year-olds all together under the block term of teenagers and only as general population drivers. The 16 and 17-year-old cohort has by far the highest risk of accident. Obviously, they're new drivers. 
lumping the adult 18 to 20 year olds in with the teenage beginner drivers skews the data. We are not letting 16 and 17 year old commercial drive commercial trucks. So while it sounds good to say young drivers have more accidents, the line doesn't apply to adult commercial drivers. And the data proves it. Research from the NSTS Centers for Safety at Virginia Tech shows that experience, not age, is the deciding factor in most accidents involving commercial trucks. Not only that, but the inexperienced older commercial driver has a far higher rate of accident than any other age group. Due to factors such as overconfidence and having more difficulty learning to safely operate a commercial truck than a younger counterpart. Further, despite the rhetoric from some, just because an 18 to 20 year old are young people doesn't make them kids. The age 18 has long been standing the legal recognition of adulthood. 18 to 21 year olds make up the backbone of the enlisted ranks of the U.S. military. Another example demonstrating experience and training are far more important factors of ability than age alone. It is important to note that the pilot apprentice program on training requirements over and above the basic CDL everyone has to have. Skilled young drivers don't magically lose those skills the minute they cross into a new state. The pilot apprentice program is not perfect by any means. Some of the equipment limitations are superfluous. The program sunsets in three years unless changed by legislative act, and it's limited to only 3,000 participants. But even with all these flaws and shortcomings, it is a positive step that would show young adult drivers capable of starting to fill the gap if given the opportunity. Too often, the voices that complain about young adults not taking their place in society are the same voices that insist on infantilization by arbitrary and unnecessary age-based regulation. 18 to 21-year-old truck drivers who already hold a CDL are not kids. They are certified, skilled, and trained adults who are vital to the economy. Ignore the lazy rhetoric and stereotypes about young drivers. Believe the data and the pressing need of the crisis at hand and let the young adults take the commercial driving wheel. And to me writing in Town Hall through Young Voices, a uh, little policy dive. Uh, we talk about the truck driver shortage and supply chain issues. A lot of those issues start with some really bad regulation, and the idea that from 18 to 21-year-old can't drive across the state line is one of those. So I wrote about it. Uh, seek that out at townhall.com. We'll do more Herd Tell right after this. Ah, it's our tell show returning guest. He was on radio. He hadn't done video yet. So now you get to see him live and in person if you're on the YouTube channel. Uh, Mr. Pelican, not just because he's an NBA fan, but he comes from the Pelican Institute down here. Young Voices contributor, writing all over the place. Really sharp guy. Uh, Eric Peterson, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, man. Uh, Pelicans had a close game last night, but uh, I'm looking forward to some games uh, this weekend. Yeah, it's uh, always good when they're playing games down there. Cause last time I really talked to you, you were running from yet another storm down there. So good to see you're sconch back in and all's well down there, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting ready for Mardi Gras. Exciting time down here in New Orleans. Yeah, I, uh, I had to do a, one of my first TDYs. I had to go down to Alexandria for and we uh, snuck up to Mardi Gras. So it's an interesting experience for sure. There's some weird folks in Sin Law. We love you all, but I'm. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about a West Virginian who was stationed in Arkansas who got sent to Sin Law. Uh, there's some weird folk down there, but we love you dearly as Americans. All right, buddy. Uh, normally, we have a real fair conversation because you're a super sharp guy. I try to read up and be informed. I'm just going to tell you up front, you're going to do a lot of explaining to me like I'm five because I don't understand this stuff, even though I try really, really hard. Um, you're a Bitcoin guy. You're a Bitcoin proponent. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin's had a rough couple of days on the market, which means they've had some really rough days in the press, media, and headlines. 
Uh, turn down the noise for us, though. What's really going on with Bitcoin? What happened the last couple of days? And is it panic time or is this just a market fluctuation? Because you see those big numbers, everybody kind of freaks out. What's actually going on here? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any uh, reason to freak out about it. The folks that are invested in Bitcoin and continue to mine Bitcoin um, continue to believe in Bitcoin. So the sort of underlying structure um, uh, of the asset or currency, um, I don't think it's changing at all. A lot of what this is response to is uh, Russia talking about potentially banning Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. Uh, they've stepped that back a little bit and said, well, maybe we just will regulate it. Um, and obviously, the, the rest of the broader market has been down as well. So um, there's just been a broader market sell-off combined with a little bit of uh, geopolitical uncertainty. Um, you know, but as, of the last few days, it's, it's already you know, catching back up at the price. And um, if you look at it at the, at the sort of year-long, uh, it is still up. So I, I don't think it's uh, much of a concern for those in the Bitcoin community. Unpack that for just a second, because we know Russia is a tyrannical government. We know Putin's yeah. a thug dictator. He's one of the wicked people on the planet. We're not going to uh, we're not going to sugarcoat that for anybody. Why would Russia want to ban Bitcoin? We know it's a control thing first and foremost, but we also understand Russia is run by oligarchs. It's run by a small group of people who have a lot of shady finances. You'd think they'd want Bitcoin being around, or is this just straight a control thing? That doesn't make sense just looking at it. Why would Russia and China's talked about the same thing as well and other dictatorships? Why are they against Bitcoin so much? Yeah, I mean, the the real value of Bitcoin, right, is that it allows people like you and me to have financial transactions without a trusted third party. So we don't need a bank. Um, now, of course, that transaction is available for everyone to see on the blockchain, uh, but a government can't put pressure on Bitcoin and stop that transaction from taking place. So uh, great for people like you and me who live in different states and might want to buy or sell something online, but especially important for countries like Russia or China um, who want to have greater economic control over what um, you know, their citizens are allowed to do, say, purchase, anything like that. Now, the common pushback, I'll just put it to you directly. You're a stand-up guy. You tell me how you answer this question. Uh, the pushback is there's a lot of nefarious stuff in here. There's some money laundering involved, these sorts of things with Bitcoin, because if there's no government involvement, there's no government oversight. You talked about the positive side of that, but there is a negative side to that. How do you answer concerns with that when people bring it up about Bitcoin? Yeah, there's a few different ways to answer it. Um, you know, I know I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners or viewers right now are familiar with the Colonial Pipeline attack. Um, they had a big ransomware incident. Um, they were actually able to retrieve a, a lot of that ransom uh, because of the way the Bitcoin uh, network works, right? Every transaction is logged and you can see where that uh, Bitcoin is flowing to. Now, you know, there's not necessarily a name associated with every account, but it does provide the opportunity for law enforcement uh, if they're technically sophisticated and you know, law enforcement is getting more technically sophisticated all the time um, to start to deal with some of those bad actors. Uh, much more so than if people are dealing with $100 bills in cash, which has uh, traditionally been the uh, currency for you know, the international drug trade or international arms trade or, or just sort of nefarious activities across the globe. Yeah, and uh, Bitcoin's lighter than hundies. Uh, talking to Eric Peterson, <laughs> uh, a little bit of Bitcoin and rapidly evolving technology in money markets. All right, another pushback on Bitcoin is that the mining itself is an issue, how they actually get this. 
you actually were posting on your social media. You just had a meeting about this with folks where you were actually talking about it, not in a negative way, but as Bitcoin mining should be considered part of infrastructure. There's our word of the year that we've been talking so much about. <laughs> um, environmental people push back against this. There's also uh, people economically push back against it because of the structure. Explain to folks what Bitcoin mining actually is. Give us the nomenclature before we get into the, the pros and cons of how they actually do this process. Yeah, the, the most basic thing to understand about mining is, is Bitcoin works by a bunch of computers um, working together to keep the network up and running. So if you and I want to send Bitcoin to each other, we need somebody else's computer to log that transaction for us. Um, that, of course, takes two big inputs. One is computer devices and uh, energy. Uh, I mean, there, there's no doubt that it, it uses a lot of energy. Uh, but so do a lot of things we use, you know, Christmas lights, our traditional financial system, you know, us doing stuff over Zoom right now, um, all, all takes energy. So, but the, the Bitcoin mining industry uh, cares a lot about low energy prices and about reaching a lot of stranded energy. Uh, you know, Louisiana is a big oil and gas state, uh, a state like North Dakota, right? Big oil and gas state. Uh, when they're pumping oil out of the ground, they uh, produce natural gas. Most of that stuff doesn't have pipelines to get to market. So there's a company in Louisiana Right, that'll take that natural gas, and rather than it having being flared off into the atmosphere, creating more carbon dioxide, they're able to convert it to electricity and use that uh, to mine Bitcoin. Now, there are examples like this all across the world. People using stuff like hydro, nuclear, um, you know, finding stranded energy assets uh, to to you know mine Bitcoin. So I don't think it's fair to just look at this total overall energy usage. We don't do that for most of the things that we work with. Um, I think it comes down to a lot of the criticism about the energy usage of Bitcoin is they don't like Bitcoin uh, to begin with. And this is an avenue of attack um, on the currency. You had that meeting. Uh, you tweeted, tweeted, <laughs> Twitter. You tweeted the picture <laughs> of all y'all sitting around the table talking about it. That's a room full of people that are very invested in Bitcoin, obviously, with the headlines that's been going on. Just kind of what was the mood as you have, you know, a group of peers of people that really know what's going on with this? What's their overall feel of where Bitcoin is? We know the bad headlines. We know that, you know, governments are looking at it. We know there's a lot of people against it. Yet y'all, and I mean, Bitcoin proponents, you seem uh, infinitely optimistic about the future of the monetary currency of Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of excitement in that room. Um, specifically, that meeting was about how we can get Louisiana to the forefront of Bitcoin mining. Um, we look at states like Wyoming, Florida, and Texas, um, where they're you know mining a ton of Bitcoin. They have a ton of investment. They're creating a lot of jobs. Um, Louisiana being the sort of uh, resource-rich state that it is, uh, you know, we're asking ourselves, why not us? What can we do to change that? And I think you know it starts first with education, and then looking at uh, you know any government policies that might be in the way. Uh, you know, perfectly reasonable regulations that just weren't, you know, written for something like Bitcoin to be on the market. Yeah, talking to Eric Peterson. Uh, now, on a practical level, one thing that I did like, even though I don't really understand all the Bitcoin mining part of this, is the places they're trying to do this. Uh, there's been talk of reusing uh, otherwise unused industrial areas. There's been programs where they take over old power plants. Uh, those types of facilities, because they have the hardened infrastructure like power lines, like uh, availability that is necessary to put those massive, I guess, server farms is kind of the best way to explain yeah. it. Um, so for areas that have that are post-industrial, and it doesn't really matter where they are as long as they got power lines and an internet connection, we talk so much about small town America and middle city America and Rust Belt America being post-industrial, trying to find something next. This seems like something you could put into some of those industrial areas and get a little bit of economic activity going, yes? 
Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. We have a, a great mining company uh, in Louisiana building these sorts of rigs, and uh, they send them to all over the world. But you have, uh, you know, just areas where people have stranded power assets, um, you know, they have something that's shut down, they have a, a plant that wouldn't be profitable, uh, but is generating a lot of electricity, they bring in a Bitcoin miner, and then they can switch up the economics of the whole situation. Um, the most exciting thing I think about Bitcoin, because it's so decentralized and a worldwide thing, um, it, it can basically go anywhere. And uh, that means economic growth uh, is, is available to all parts of the country and the world, quite frankly. Yeah, talking to Eric Peterson. One more thing about this Bitcoin before we move on. Um, you have mentioned it. I've heard other people mention it. Um, what kind of economic impact are we talking? Because we talk about government being a, against Bitcoin. Uh, we've seen this movie, so we know how this goes. Uh, that means they don't know exactly how to monetize it for the government yet. Uh, where do you see this going policy-wise with things like regulation, with things like zoning, with things like taxes? Because honestly, if the government can tax it, they're going to be more okay with it. That's kind of where I think policy-wise a lot of this is going. Do you agree with that? And where do you think this is going in the future to kind of normalize Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I would say when I look at the future regulation for Bitcoin, at least in this country, I see a lot of buy-in at the state level, right? You see places like Texas, Florida, Wyoming. Um, they're leaders in this industry, and I, I think that will prevent or provide a buffer over Congress or the executive branch uh, sort of overstepping its bounds the way that Russia or China did. Um, that said, in, in some ways, you know, regulating Bitcoin is, I don't want to say almost impossible, but it's, it's very difficult. And so when you have you know, countries like China or Iran or you know, El Salvador or Turkey or El Salvador's pro-Bitcoin, um, like Venezuela or Turkey, uh, try to clamp down on Bitcoin. I think that's where Bitcoin is most valuable. It's sort of hard to explain to somebody in America that has a re relatively well-working financial system, even with inflation, we're not dealing with hyperinflation, the value of Bitcoin. Um, but you know, it's really in those places that Bitcoin has its greatest value. Yeah. Talking to Eric Peterson, uh, a little bit about Bitcoin, a little bit about technology. When we come back, he's got an interesting piece where he explains NFTs. Yeah, you've been seeing them all over your social media feeds. You don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. He's going to explain it to us like we're five and get us walked through it. He's going to use a sports analogy to try to explain it. We'll get into that right after this on Hertel. We're back with Eric Peterson, Young Voices contributor. He's from the Pelican Institute. He's one of them Louisiana folks down there uh, who we love, but we like when they come visit and then leave because they're a little off in the center, but we love you guys. We're just playing with you. Um, all right. We already talked about Bitcoin. One thing that folks don't understand real well, you have written a piece over in TechDirt, which is a cool little website that I've used before. Uh, NFTs. Uh, before we get into the piece, though, I think people just see it online. They're like, why are you paying for a clip art picture of something else? They don't understand it. So let's just work on the nomenclature right off the bat, Eric. What yeah. is an NFT on a basic level before we delve into this further? Yeah, an NFT just means non-fungible token. Uh, essentially, that just means something that is irreplaceable. It's, it's one of a kind. Um, the best way I, I think of describing it is something like um, art, right? If you go to a new museum, you can see a piece of art. Um, you know, it's behind all that glass. You know, you can't touch it. It's worth millions of dollars. 
Uh, but you can go into the gift shop and buy a perfectly good copy of that for you know 30 bucks and hang it up um, in your house. Uh, NFTs sort of work the opposite way, right? Uh, you know, you get a perfect copy of a JPEG on the internet. I can send it to you. You can send it to me. Um, the non-fungible part comes in. We talk about blockchain technology a little bit. We were talking before with Bitcoin. Um, all it is is basically an ownership certificate. It would say that you and Andrew own uh, this particular JPEG. Nobody else can own it, and everybody else can see that you have ownership claims over it. That's the breakdown, though, because I'm like, okay, but it's still just a picture of a picture. Like that's that's where people just have trouble getting to. How does that have any value other than just what you say it has value? But I think you had an interesting way of dealing with that in this piece because you tie it to and make an analogy to sports memorabilia, which is the same thing. Whereas you could have a Babe Ruth signed baseball. That would mean a lot to a baseball fan, but to somebody in another part of the world who doesn't know who Babe Ruth is, that's just a ball. So explain it that way, the way you kind of laid it out in your piece, because I think that's an interesting way to kind of get into it and let people maybe get their arms around it where it's so, you know, out there in the ether of, oh, well, it's this and this and it's a picture of a picture. Explain it that way to folks and let them try to get their mind around it. Yeah. I mean, human beings put ownership or value on all sorts of really interesting things. Like you said, autographs, um, you know, a, a, a jersey, right? A game seven worn jersey, right? It, at the end of the day, it's just a jersey. It has a use value, but it has sentimental value because of the history behind it. Um, in the same way, an NFT tries to put history around something that's, that's digital, um, something that we can't necessarily tangibly hold on to. Um, and, and that's the value for it. And, you know, because it's on the blockchain, everybody can see that I have ownership of that. There's no dispute of it. Um, you know, it, without the blockchain technology, again, I could create this great piece of art online, say I'm the creator of it, uh, but it would get shared around to, you know, a few million people and, and nobody would be able to verify that. And there sort of goes the, the value um, that human beings place on having a, a unique copy of something. Right. And then in your piece, but you brought it up, it is decentralized. So then the, the counterpoint to that is always going to be, well, because it's decentralized, how do you enforce ownership on something that's by its own very nature decentralized? I know we can go on the logs and look at it on the blockchain, yep. but it, this stuff doesn't have a uh, tort law attached to it yet. There's no way to really, it hadn't been tested in court of who has ownership and suing people and this sort of thing. So that part of it is the pushback of, do you really own it if you can't enforce it? Yeah, I, so it, it's a good question, right? Um, I, I want to be very clear that NFTs are not copyright, um, right? I, I can't buy an NFT of a piece of work and say that nobody else can ever, uh, you know, copy the JPEG or use it. Um, what it is is that I can provide some claim of ownership on the blockchain. Um, it's a lot of way. It, it's the same way that um, uh, you know, rich people buy you know art and hang it up in the house. The difference between again me buying a $50 perfect replica of a piece of art and hanging up in my house and somebody paying millions of dollars to hang it up in a museum. Makes sense. Uh, Eric Peterson, Pelican Institute, Young Voices contributor joining us. All right. Another one of those kind of analogies though is of ownership is people buy stock in things. Uh, mm -hmm. You get a piece of paper for the wall. You used a sports metaphor for this or an analogy, I should say, of the Green Bay Packers, because some folks that aren't sports ball enthusiasts may not know the Green Bay Packers are actually publicly owned. You can buy a share in the Green Bay Packers, and you use that to try to explain some of this NFT stuff as well. 
Yeah, uh, I'm currently a very uh, suffering Packers fan. Uh, last weekend was not good. Uh, but despite that, I'm very proud of how the Packers are owned. Like you said, it's public ownership. Um, they provide an opportunity. Um, it's been about every decade or so for fans to go off and buy Packers stock. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like an NFT. It's piece of paper that I, I put up on the wall. It has a certificate number of it. Um, but it does grant me a few benefits, right? I can go to the annual shareholders meeting. Um, I have access to Packers only uh, owner merchandise. And a lot of what I was saying uh, in the piece is I think there's a better use for NFTs than what we're seeing right now. Uh, you know, I, I sort of described it as something that rich people might buy to, to show off, um, to claim to have some ownership over things. But because tokens are non-fungible and you can prove on the blockchain who owns it, um, a lot of ways they can be uh, like a ticket to get into something that can be instantly verifiable. So um, if I want to put it on Twitter, I know we interact on Twitter, right? You can now put an NFT into your, your picture on there. Uh, when I tweet about the Packers, about how disappointed I am in the loss, uh, everybody might be able to see and verify that I'm in fact an owner of Packers stock. Um, I might be able to buy an NFT in the Packers or the, the New Orleans Pelicans, and I might get access to exclusive merchandise, whether uh, in person or virtually. Um, I might have access to uh, specific things online where I can go talk to the coach, talk to the players um, that would only be possible because I have an NFT and they could verify that I'm a season ticket holder or I purchased this NFT or something like that. I think that's a real exciting part about what NFTs can do for the future of sports, not just the sort of collectible nature of it that we've seen so far. Yeah. You talked about it earlier. Um, there's this stuff has its own language. Obviously it's cutting edge tech stuff. So it has kind of a techie nerdy wonky cult surrounding kind of thing to it. You talked about orange pilled earlier <laughs> is part of what's going on here though, is there needs to be a normalization of the language barrier of this instead of just talking about NFT and blockchain comparing like, Oh, this is like buying a stock or this is like buying memorabilia. Do you think that's part of a cultural change that needs to happen for this to be more of a mainstream thing and not just that weird thing we see on social media? Yeah, I mean, definitely uh, younger people have picked up uh, that in the nomenclature very quickly. But I think if these things are going to go broader, it's definitely going to uh, take some educational efforts. Um, you know, I think that's going to fall incumbent on uh, teams, companies, you know, whoever to sort of break it down for the for the individual people, right? In the same way that smartphones were, you know, this weird thing that people had 13 years ago, and and now we're we're used to it and things like. Twitter or TikTok or Instagram are things we're all really familiar with. Um, you know, that said, there's definitely a bit more of a learning curve here because so many, so much of the technology is decentralized. You can't just go to one place and they sort of have a, a one size fits all explainer for it. But um, I think people start to pit, pick it up. And, you know, this technology is, is barely a few years old, um, especially in the NFT space. Yeah. Talking to Eric Peterson, um, <laughs> you ended your piece in tech there that we've been talking about. Uh, with NFTs and other things, you end up talking about the decentralized ownership. Uh, DAO is the acronym for decentralized ownership model. Uh, we know the history of this, though. Uh, things both in business and in government regulation, they decentralize and they get regula regulated, then they centralize and they decentralize again. There's a cycle and a pattern to these things through history. How is that pattern going to play out, do you think, with this new technology? Because obviously, you know, Congress is going to start looking at this. We already talked about Russia and China and other governments are looking at things like Bitcoin. They're going to look at this NFT stuff. They're just going to because that's what they do. How do you see that cycle of decentralizing and then regulation coming into it playing out with this new technology? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, Wyoming yesterday was actually just looking at their laws on decentralized autonomous organizations. So um, once again, Wyoming continues to be a leader um, in this space, um, you know, I, I don't think that government will actually do that much uh, with these sorts of organizations, if I'm totally honest with you. Um, I, I think a lot of them is are figuring out the way that laws work. Uh, for example, people bought a NFT of Dune and thought that gave them copyright ownership of Dune, um, and they quickly found out that was not the case. So, um, you know, in a lot of ways, our current laws are are built to deal with these sort of organizational structures. Um, you know, it might just take a little clarification around the edges. I think the the better question is how private organizations are going to deal with these sorts of structures. Um, I, I give an example of. Um, ownership of sports teams through these decentralized organizations, right? The Packers are a kind of model about this, but they still have a, a board that makes a lot of these decisions. I sort of uh, wondered what it would be like if a team was really just owned by the fans um, who had, had purchased stock and were able to make some of these decisions. Um, and of course, the NFL has rules that prevent those sort of things from happening. But, you know, we're seeing new sports leagues pop up all the time, whether it's the United States Football League giving it another try, um, you know, whether it's smaller leagues, whether it's women's uh, base leagues that are starting up. Um, I think some of these organizations are really going to take a take a look at these different sort of ownership models as a way to build up fan interest and fan involvement. Um, and, and frankly, to uh, disperse some of the financial risks of, you know, spending millions of dollars on something that might not work out. So I, I think I'm more interested in what the private government side will say about these sort of organizations rather than what government will say about it. Yeah, talking to Eric. Peterson. Okay, we've been beating you over the head with terms we don't know. Let's get to something more relatable. Uh, you are a New Orleans fan. It's been a rough couple of days for New Orleans sports fans. Uh, Sean Payton is leaving the Saints. Uh, the Pelicans are up and down. There's other things going on. What is the state of mind of the New Orleans sports fan today as you sit there? Yeah, um, I think they're really grateful for the time they had with Sean Payton and Drew Brees. Um, as they look at the, the Saints salary cap situation and the draft pick situation, uh, they've had been mortgaging the future for quite some time um, for the ability to keep that window open and compete. And, you know, they've been one of the most successful franchises for the last decades. And I don't think the, the Saints fans would trade that for anything. Um, that said, I, I think they're really um, know that times are going to be tough, at least for the next few years. But I think there's more belief in the organization than there has been some time that the, the current ownership structure and the current decision-making structure will be solid. Um, but a lot of people are putting on their Joe Burrow jerseys and, uh, you know, really rooting for him as the playoffs move forward. I think that will um, give a lot of folks something to root for. And I'm really excited for that Bengals Saints game in New Orleans next year. I am sure it will be the hottest ticket in town. Yeah. Uh, Eric Peterson, proud Louisiana dweller. Uh, we were kidding them a little bit, but Louisiana is a wonderful, unique place in America. If you've never traveled there, you need to go there. Not just New Orleans, uh, upstate, the bayous, the coastline, all of it. One of the great food places. You know we're big on food here. One of Absolutely. the great food places in all of the world. Uh, Eric, appreciate your time today so much. Tell people what you got going on. Pelican Institute, you're also writing with young voices all over the place, doing media like here on Herd. Tell, let people know where they can find you on your social media and what you got going on. Yeah, they can find me at Eric underscore Peterson underscore or at Pelican uh, org. Um, also, it's king cake season. So order a king cake from your favorite bakery down in New Orleans. I promise you will not be disappointed. Yeah, if nothing else, when you go to New Orleans, if you just do beignets and king cake, you'll leave happy. Everything else will work itself out. Uh, Eric Peterson, thank you so much for the time, my friend. Uh, returning guest, and we'll have you back again soon to explain more of this stuff that I don't understand very well. Okay. Look, looking forward to it.
<laughs> Thank you, sir. Good job. Guy, welcome back to Hurt Tell. You know we always try to end on a happier note, lighter note, something you can take home and feel good about since we have to cover so many heavy topics. This one is brilliant. I absolutely love this. Washington Post. Texas teen raised $30,000 at a livestock show. She donated it to the hospital that treated her for cancer. Uh, reading from the piece, after the cancer surgeries and treatments, Maddie Barber, 17, had some partial paralysis on her right side. Uh, Maddie, I can relate to you. It's not fun. It prevented Maddie, who lives near San Antonio, from playing favorite school sports like volleyball, so her father encouraged her to join Future Farmers of America, the FAA, if you're familiar with that, and to raise pigs with her brother on the family's nine-acre farm. She found that raising and showing animals is something she can do, and she enjoys it, her father, Travis Barber, said. The family had been overwhelming sense of gratitude since 2018 when Maddie was declared free from brain cancer, medulloblastoma, hope I'm saying that right, and had consumed their lives since she was diagnosed at the age of 12. This month, Maddie figured out a way she could say thank yous to the doctors and nurses at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, who only treated her cancer but were supportive of the entire family. They removed my tumor and saved my life, Maddie said, a high school junior who lives near Bourne, Texas. I wanted to give back in some way to help other kids struggling with cancer to have the same chance. So on January the 8th, she went to the Kendall County Junior Livestock Show, where young people show their animals and the audience offers to donate and offers donations as part of a fundraiser for the Future Farmers of America members. The young people often use the money, which is given as a show of a style of an auction, for the college fund or to buy more livestock. And there's pictures of her with the pigs, which are just too cute. But when Maddie showed two hogs she raised since she was piglet, she was shocked at what happened after the auctioneer announced she was donating all the money she raised that day to St. Jude's. As she stood on the grandstand, dozens of people in her community raised their hands in a pitch and what they could towards her cause. One rancher offered 500 another one topped it with 1000 up and up the number went until it got to $30,500. I was really in shock it went that high. I noticing most kids go home with between two dollars and $4,000, and she got thirty grand. I was crying. Uh, there was a sea of people holding up their bidding numbers, said her mother, Tally Barber, 45, a tutor from the Bourne Independent School District. I was so proud of Maddie and equally proud of our community to give so much. They're incredible people. Everybody stepped up and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Shaman Waltman, Cheyenne Waltman, who is Maddie's agricultural science teacher and FFA advisor, where she ended up with one or $30,000, she was going to donate it all. I love this story. Um, if you've never heard of St. Jude's or been to St. Jude's, my first duty station was actually in Little Rock. So we actually got to do some volunteer stuff at St. Jude's. I've got to actually go there. It is an amazing place. Uh, the patients and the parents don't pay anything. It's all paid for by charity. That includes a lot of times living expenses, taking care of the families. It's an amazing place with an amazing cause. Um, so for her to do this, to pay back, and the fact that she recovered from cancer herself, an amazing story. And those are the kind of stories we just love to cover. Great way to end the day on Herd Tell, because that's going to do it for this edition of Herd Tell on this Thursday. Uh, however you're watching or listening, we just want to say thank you. Had a couple meetings uh, the last few days, some things we're planning in the future, uh, planning some things with Big Talker FM, our friends over there. Uh, as they look towards the future, some of their planning. Uh, right now, you can stream the show on Big Talker FM's platforms. Uh, BigTalkerFM.com has a Play It Live tab. They also have an app. 
A lot of you are watching on their Facebook page, Big Talker FM on Facebook. You can watch the show on there anytime, but it is live 6 a.m. with a replay at 3 p.m. So if you're watching that way, thank you. Looking forward to some of the things we're planning on doing with them. Also have a partnership with Young Voices. Had another one today. Going to have more of them in the future. Bright people that you're going to be seeing a lot in the commentary over the next future years. We get them today. We're proud to work with them. Also, folks like Elections Daily. We had Sarah Stook on the other day. We've had Joe Zemanski. Uh, we'll have Cunningham back on at some point, I'm sure. Love working with those guys. And, of course, the writers at Ordinary-Times.com, where I'm the managing editor. I'm telling you all this to let you know uh, these partnerships are important because it gives us a wide perspective across the spectrum of politics and culture to continue to bring you good information from a variety of viewpoints. Perspective is very important to make sure we're getting good information because it keeps us from getting down in a hole where we're just looking up and we don't understand what's going on in the world around us. We don't ever want to be in silos. We want to be part of the community. We want to be good citizens and we want to do the best we can to make America better in little small ways that affect our families, our communities, and our country. So if you're on any of the podcasting platforms or the YouTube channel, make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating. Those are really important. Let people know our programs worth checking out. You want to really do us a solid. It'll only cost you a couple clicks, but it's a big deal to us. Put us on your social media, share the program, let people know it's coming out, support our guests, let people know what they're saying on the program. Let folks know that it's free to subscribe And we'd love to have them with us as we try to turn down the noise on the news cycle that's just going to get louder and louder as we go forward. So wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you tomorrow on Hurtell. All the music on Hurtell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.